<clears throat> one, two, one, two. This is a Romy cast. Never get tired of being Beatles. Uh, when I play the drums, I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, Can we just have a little less guitar in here for oh, that's all way. Way. Yes, not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode is Stephen Stanley. This is part two of our conversation about great Beatles guitar moments. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I strongly urge that you go back and do that. Listen to part one and then come back and listen to part number two. More about Stephen, in case you didn't know. Stephen, first and foremost, a Canadian indie music icon and well-known from his time with the band Lowest of the Low back in those ancient times, the 90s, where they created one of the great indie albums of the era, Shakespeare, My Butt. And Stephen has since blossomed off into a solo career and he currently fronts his own band the Stephen Stanley Band uh, the last studio album that he put out was a while back it was in 2017 the critically acclaimed Jimmy and the Moon and he is set to release a brand new studio record anytime now uh, it is called Before the Collapse of the Hive and if you'd like to support that record to get it over the finish line, Stephen has an Indiegogo campaign on the go. It's to raise funds to put a few finishing touches in the record and then launch it. So if you'd like to support that, follow the link on the episode page of this podcast. You can find the Stephen Stanley Band online at stephenstanleyband.com. He's on Insta under the handle Stephen Stanley. And on Facebook, you just do a search for the Stephen Stanley Band page. Just a reminder that the website for this podcast is romicast.com. And if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is the 11th episode of Series 3. You can find all of the previous episodes from this series as well as all of the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2 at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. All right, so this is Episode 2, as I mentioned, of a two-parter with Stephen during which I've had Stephen select his 12 favorite guitar moments from the Beatles catalog. The playlist is on the episode page of this podcast at romicast.com if you want to go and have a look and build your own playlist so you can listen to Stephen's great Beatles guitar moments album uh, in the order in which we have covered all of 
of the tracks. We did side one, the first six tracks in the last episode. This episode, we're going to flip it over and do side number two. So, uh, Stephen, just to bring you back in here, uh, we finished up with side one, and it was Hello, Goodbye, the sixth and final track of that side one, featuring heavily compressed and treated electric guitar parts. It's a great song, but we start side number two with a song that could not be more different, right? Oh, cool. A beautiful, naked, acoustic guitar played by Paul McCartney, a song we all know called Blackbird. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life You were only waiting For this moment to arrive uh, An absolutely beautiful song And as I've said Is this maybe a close second to Norwegian Wood Like I think as a signature Piece on the guitar All done by McCartney uh, You know It really is Unto itself And and this is, this is one of those ones Like I've always been uh, in awe of friends of mine that can play this verbatim the way he played it. I learned a sort of a cheat version where it's just I'm not doing the basically the bass notes and the high notes are playing the same thing. He, his inspiration was uh, uh, Sebastian, Johann Sebastian Bach's uh, Bore in E minor, where where the, the distinguished by melody and bass notes played simultaneously on upper and lower strings, and he and George Harrison apparently love to play it as a sort of a show-off piece that, that, to show how good they were on the guitars. Um, so seeing people that can play this and have bothered to learn the whole positioning of it always blew my mind. Um, it's, it is just, it's just perfectly, like you said, it's just so pure, so all in one take. And so you hear three things. You hear, you hear his voice, you hear uh, the guitar that he's playing, and you hear his foot tapping. And like... That, that's so cool because when you go back and listen to that, you figure that it's some kind of you know weird percussion that that George Martin added on or something like that. A metronome. A metronome. Well, people have said metronome, although it doesn't sound like a metronome to me. But but that's been a, a big argument. But it's his. He he apparently is tapping both his feet. Both. It, yeah. It, yeah. It, there is a film that exists of him recording okay, this, yeah. and he's and he's going yeah. one foot to the yeah. other. It's yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, and it's completely perfectly in time, and it it makes the song again. It's got that sort of sitting around the campfire vibe. Just a person with a guitar playing a nice song. Now, I don't know if you play it like this or not, but what I was able to find out was uh, in terms of tuning, both of the E strings are dropped to D. Oh, yeah, okay. uh, And the chords are carried mostly on the second and fourth strings. Yeah. Now, very interesting. I heard an interview with, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, I'm sure you are, Brad Meldow, uh, probably the greatest living jazz pianist there is uh brad meldow has just recently released an album um called your mother should know brad meldow plays the beatles and he does interpretations of some beatles songs solo on jazz piano and i heard him talking about 
McCartney's writing and he talked about this song in particular and I would never have picked this up but he says McCartney does this a lot in his writing with his cording but he says he'll have one open string that features in almost every chord and he says in this song there's an open G string in almost every single chord in the song uh, yeah, because he's like he's like he's probably using his uh, thumb and second finger to pluck everything, right? So it's like boom, boom. It's got that sort of vibe to it. Uh, yeah, interesting. Oh, yeah. it was it's uh, it was just incredible to hear you know a guy like Meldow talk about it and and just say, well, wow. Yeah, uh, he's so he when he replicates it on the on the piano, he's he's trying to replicate that that open G. And uh, this one recorded on on his Martin D twenty eight. And oh, you got that! I couldn't is, find is, it. There is you a beautiful go. Beautiful guitar. Well done. And thirty-two takes, eleven of which were complete. It's the last take that ends up on the album. Wow! Good. So that's what I was talking about before with with the Beatles is their ability to have you know take one be as good as take thirty-eight or whatever one that ends up on the record. They're just they don't lose momentum in the studio. They don't. They didn't lose energy and momentum. Like I know a lot of situations I've been in, when you're you know going through that sort of Springsteen thing, when you're doing something for the fortieth time, it becomes harder to. And the Beatles just didn't seem, didn't seem to have that filter. They just we were able to sort of just like okay, we're, we're I mean partially, they'd abandoned playing live by this point, and it was all about the studio. So it was just about creation. So it was just about we're doing this until we feel it's it's right and. They always got it right. It's amazing. It's really amazing. Uh, just a, a lot of, you know, what was the inspiration for the song? I think there's been a lot of McCartney, yeah. you know, as the years have gone by, has changed it a few times. So in 2018, uh, he said, no, it was a, it was a civil rights song. Um, you know, uh, the, the black bird should be interpreted as black girl in the context of the civil rights troubles in the Southern U S. Uh, then, uh, his, uh, there was somebody else who said that, uh, McCartney wrote it for his, uh, for, um, his stepmother, Angie McCartney. McCartney wrote it for her elderly mother, Edith Stopford who was staying at Jim McCartney's house while recovering from a long illness. And then I found an interview that he did, which is probably the most accurate, November of 1968. Uh, so right around when the, well, when the album was coming out. So he would have been promoting that. <clears throat> No reference at all to civil rights movement. He said, well, it's simple. Uh, in con it's simple in concept because you couldn't think of anything else to put on it. And that's what I was saying about Sergeant Pepper thing. Maybe on Pepper we would have sort of worked on it until we could find some way to put violins or trumpets in there. But I don't think it needs it, this one. You know, it's just, there's nothing to the song. It's just one of those, pick it and sing it and that's it. So that. McCartney, when, whenever he uh, is put on the spot to describe thematics, he he doesn't. He often will will be very. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He he kind of keeps it very loose. Like like he'll he'll say things like, "Oh, it was it was uh, informed by the civil rights movement," but it won't go any further than that. There's no specific reference to a particular incident or anything like that. Um, one thing I did see about the song was that he, when uh, Linda McCartney came to his house. The first time when they decided to, uh, they were going to be married, he uh, from his second 
floor window, opened the window, and played Blackbird to the people in the street yeah. below. People yeah. that apparently hung out in front of his house all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. There's a he's uh, just his house is, is still there. He has one there, one of many, but it's uh, just around the corner uh, from uh, Abbey Road Recording Studio. It's like a short walk. Um, I've walked by it. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, next cut. It, uh, I, I mean, you talk about riffs that people love, um, and I absolutely love the finger picking. I, I don't know what what is it an arpeggio or I don't know what it's called, but I love the finger picking on your next song that you chose, yeah. Dear Prudence. genealogy of this is that Lennon was taught this finger-picking style by Donovan um, in India when they were with the Maharishi. Uh, and it is that sort of, it's a sort of a droning, it's got this sort of droning feel that is mesmerizing as it takes you through the song. Um, also, Ringo had temporarily left the band when they were recording this song. Yep. That's, that stuff, you know, is lost on you in the history. And when you read that again, it's kind of, Wow, like, so there was a moment, like so McCartney plays the drums on this song. First two tracks in the White Album, McCartney plays the drums yeah. on Back in the USSR, and then he, he plays the drums on yeah. this song. And great drum fills on this they're song. Great, they're great. <laughs> there's nothing that I can, I mean, you know, and then he went on, when his first solo album is just all him, right? It's like, it's like there's nothing he couldn't do. Right? Is it, is this a, I don't know if you played or not, is this a difficult song to play? Um, this one I don't know very well. I wouldn't, but I wouldn't think it was difficult. It's, it's just got that sort of repetitive droning part that, you know, just kind of carries through it. Um, and then by this point, they're uh, on eight tracks, right? So they've got more flexibility in how they record. And I think you can kind of hear that there's there's extra layering going on. But it's just a, it's just a beautiful guitar song, just sort of so simple and lilting. And uh, I thought the the idea that Lennon sort of Copped this picking style from Donovan was a, was a cool, uh, cool little tidbit of knowledge. Um, but yeah, just like you know, this this kind of falls under just one of my favorite songs category. Like it's just a nice song. Uh, Lennon says, uh, "Dear Prudence is me," written in India, a song about Mio Farrow's sister who seemed to go slightly barmy, meditating too long, and couldn't come out of the little hut that we were living in. They selected me and George to try to bring her out because she would trust us. If she'd been in the West, they would have put her away. (laughs) And Uh, her take on it is that she just was a little more serious about it than everybody else, didn't know what all all the fuss was about, and she was pretty blown away when she found out that this song was written about her. So Yes, she uh, she said she was flattered by the Beatles' yeah. gesture in creating Dear Prudence. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing to have done. In a 2013 interview, she said she had been uh, relieved to listen to it for the first time and discover that unlike Lennon's negative sentiments about his Rishikesh experience in the White Album tracks Sexy Sadie and the continuing story of Bungalow Bill, the song was generous in spirit and Pharaoh, in fact, titled her 2015 autobiography after the track. Yeah, she cool. ended up calling it that. Uh, guitar stuff. Uh, McCartney is playing his Fender jazz bass right. in this song. And Lennon is playing his Epiphone E230-TD Casino. It's a D chord, 
with the lower E string dropped to a D. Right. So drop D tuning, yeah. 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 Yep, so. yeah that's amazing. what you pros call it. Yeah. That's yeah. what that one's called, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's, you know, I mean, I don't think I've actually written any songs. And I have I have one that I haven't finished yet that was written in drop D. And it's it's fascinating how it sort of changes your perspective. It really is. It really is Do cool. you, well, I'm just pulling that thread a little. Yeah. Do you write many songs in alternate tunings, period? Or do you just- Not many, no. Just but standard I, tuning. I will sort of, like, I will sort of just, you know, one day, like, detune something to an alternate tuning and just play around with it and see what comes out. And like I said, there's one one that I'll, you know, like I, I can't really yet think ahead to the next record, but it's far enough along that I, it will end up being a song at some point. It's just not quite, it wasn't quite there for this group of songs. But but yeah, it's really it's really fascinating. You know, the, the um, when we played with Billy Bragg at the amphitheater in 2001, we... Uh, asked his manager if he'd do a song with us and the manager said sure and the conversation didn't go any further so when he arrived that day he uh said he said to us what song do you want to do and we'd rehearsed um a song called accident waiting to happen and he was like oh that's that's all from the, that entire album i wrote in drop d uh and that really kind of a made me go back and listen to it again and go, oh yeah, I get that. I get what you're talking about. But that was awesome because he was like, okay, uh, I'll do this song with you, but you guys are gonna have to teach it to me. So we had to teach Billy Bragg his own song. And th- and there was a great, there's great photos of us standing on stage at the amphitheater um, in the day. And we're all in a circle and we've all got acoustic guitars and we're teaching Billy Bragg his own freaking song. And oh, I love that the, story. And the next time he came to Toronto, that song was in the set and was a centerpiece in the set. And I was like, I think we deserve credit for that because it brought it back. Like it was an, it was an amazing moment in the show. Like he was just, he just seemed so happy and so sincere to be on stage with us. He, he sang, Ron sang the first verse, he sang the second verse, but I was the only guy that got to harmonize with him, which I thought that was so cool. I'm harmonizing with Billy Bragg. Um, the sweetest guy. He's he's a wonderful guy. When I when he played the horseshoe just before the pandemic, I went down with a really good friend of mine. We stayed for the show and uh, we were leaving. And um, Leslie Goldthorpe, who works for the horseshoe, said, "Where are you guys going?" I said, "Well, we're heading home now." You know, she goes, "No, you're not." Billy wants to say hi, so she takes us back to that little room at the horseshoe backstage. And for the next forty minutes, Billy and I and my friend sat around yapping for about everything and anything for and he's just like he was just such a friendly and it was such a great experience for my friend who was a huge fan of his to get to sort of hang out with him and it was totally unexpected but you know he that he is sort of like he's been aware of what we're all doing since since those days so it's pretty cool and such a a great if you're not familiar with billy bragg dear listener he's he's worth uh finding out more about uh, aside from being a a great musician he's a musician with a conscience he's such a social justice you know champion for the working man and and has been you know has been his whole career and makes a point to know politically what's going on in every place he plays and integrates that into his show and he's he's a true true pro it's like nobody puts a show together like he does it's just the best well you put it very succinctly uh guitar masterpiece top to bottom then the riff comes in in the chorus helter skelter you every person who plays electric guitar must at least have a crack at this when i get to the bottom i go back to 
because it's a really maligned song in the, the critical body of work of the Beatles. It's quite a maligned song. Like uh, at the time, I think a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the critics just sort of thought it was a throwaway, that it hadn't achieved what he was trying to achieve, which was to, like, by a reaction to Pete Townsend, an interview you read with, with Townsend, stating that I can see for miles, we've just made the raunchiest, loudest, most ridiculous rock and roll record you've ever heard. And McCartney says to himself and to the band, I want to surpass that. He didn't, didn't even know what the song was. He didn't know that it was I Can See For Miles. And, you know, I mean, side by side, Helter Skelter goes a lot further than <laughs> yeah, I Can See For little. Miles. <laughs> um, I, I just think it's just some beautiful guitar playing. And it's just a beautiful recording of, the, of that guitar playing. It's so wide open and it just flows um, and it is, it's a great rock song. And then there's all that sort of theory. Well, is this the beginning of heavy metal? Like, I don't buy into all that. I mean, you know, sure, sure. It's like, there's a lot of what happens in this song that you could easily sort of see as a progression into the, you know, what, what Motorhead did or whatever. But does that, I don't know, does that matter to me? It's just like a band experimenting with the instruments that they love to play and achieving something that, that was great. And uh, apparently this is one of three songs that Harrison played his Bartell fretless guitar on. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's I'm looking at my guitar notes. I thought, um, like Paul and George both on electric guitars, John plays the bass. Mm -hmm. On this song. But it's the it's the tenor bass, right? It's the six string Fender bass that that he plays. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll go with you on that. Uh, now, so George George around this time he played a lot. Uh, he played a, a, a red colored 1957 Gibson Les Paul, yeah. which was a gift to him from Eric Clapton. Mm -hmm. But you're saying he's not playing that in this song. Well, there's there's a lot of uh, sort of Floating theories about which they think he used this Bartel fretless that he was gifted on three songs on the White Album. And they think this might be one of them. Although there's no documented proof of that. Um, I don't, and I didn't come across anything where anyone was asked directly, like any anybody from the band. Was oh, it was, a, it was a bugger uh, researching this episode. I was trying yeah. to find out the guitars yeah, played on. And I could find, I've got a couple excellent sources of the instruments that they were playing that year. Yeah. But there was nobody, you know, yeah. I guess for obvious reasons, jotting down. Okay, Helter Skelter, Epiphone Casino, 320. <laughs> I'm actually surprised by that. And I suspect there's probably books that you can find. <laughs> but but going along that, and I've always been curious, because, I mean, you're a guitar guy, obviously. Yeah. You're a professional musician. Can you, t if I blindfolded you mm -hmm. and played, uh, you know, uh, a G chord on uh, a Strat and then on a Casino and then uh, could you go, yep, yep, this... 
that's the casino, that's the strat, that's the, you know, what's them call it? Like, do they sound to, that distinctive? To, to an extent. So like if it was a difference between a strat, a telly, a, a Les Paul, yes. When you start getting into hollow body guitars, like, you know, you can maybe guess that that's a, that's a Gretsch or that's a that's an Epiphone casino. Um, to me, it's really when you get into sort of picking styles, like with a Telecaster, you really know what's a Telecaster, just hmm. the way it sounds. Um, and a Strat has a very distinct sound too. But then in the same, in the same breath, people can take that, you know, like, like uh, Cobain played Strats. Like a, that you, weren't, you weren't sort of listening to him, what he did, thinking, well, that's a, strat, a traditional Strat sound. Like, so there's lots of ways to alter sounds too. So no, I mean, I'm, no, there are people that would be able to do it better than I can, but I have my preferences um, I've only recorded, I recorded with a Strat for a lot of Shakespeare's is played on a Strat. And then I never, I sold that Strat and got my Gretsch and my Les Paul and never used it again. And I used a Strat once on one of my solo, rec solo records and I really like what it did, but it was only going to be on that one, set, one song. And I borrowed that guitar from, uh, from um, capsule and it was a beautiful like 60s strat and just played it for that one song and then uh that was a that was a nice option in those days like and we did the same in, in vancouver um we had well i do you know, have i told you the story about the the, the lennon vox from the cavern because when we were making um when we were making uh Lucigenia, uh, we went out there with our gear which was you know pretty beaten up and pretty minimal at that point we were just sort of getting our feet under us as a band, going into that second record, financially speaking, anyways. And we got hooked up with uh, Brian Adams' uh, guitar guy. His first name was Lance. He was his tech and also his kind of guru of finding gear. And he was a, he was a rental guy. And, and uh, he rented us a bunch of effects, a bunch of guitars. And we wanted a Vox for the studio. We just wanted to have an AC30 AC, uh, to have, have as an option. And he was like... My AC30s are all out, he said, but I'm going to bring this one over and I'm going to place it where it needs to be placed in the studio. And then you guys guarantee to me that it never gets moved and I come and pick it up. So we're like, okay, well, I'm not really sure what that means. And he gets there and he says, this amp was John Lennon's amp in the cavern. And he said, I have a certification, which he showed us, that certified wow. as John Lennon's amp. So on three tracks on Hallucigenia, I'm playing, I'm playing through John Lennon's Cavern AC30. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's like those little things that happen along the way that just like <laughs> are just happy accidents. Played on John Lennon's amp. Uh, sang harmony with Billy Bragg. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good list to go down. Pretty good career, yeah. <laughs> uh, here's the great helter helter skelter story. Uh, so it's September 9th when they're recording this. September 9th, 1968. 18 takes lasting approximately five minutes each were recorded, with the last one featured on the original LP. At around 3:40, the song completely fades out, then gradually fades back in, fades back out partially, and finally fades back in quickly and you get the famous three cymbal crashes and shouting from Ringo during the end of the 18th take he threw his drumsticks across the studio and screamed I got blisters on my fingers I've got blisters on my fingers which is hilarious because there should be a guitar line not a drum line um, and that only appeared that 
line, him saying, only appears on the stereo mix. Only on the stereo. Yeah. The mono version, uh, originally on LP, ends on the first fade-out without Star's outburst. McCartney, in his recollection, uh, this wasn't a joke put on. His hands were actually bleeding at the yeah. end of the take. He'd been drumming so ferociously. We did work very hard on that track. So that day, there was a day previous to that, I think maybe four or five days before, where they recorded five versions of it, and they were in the 26-minute length. They were long, long versions, and they abandoned those to come back to these. Yeah, I don't know yeah. that I'd want a 26-minute version of Helter Skelter. Yeah, but. I mean, like that's, but that's probably just them coming up with what this song's going to be, right? Like that's, like that's, yeah, it's hard to really, I don't. I haven't heard one of those. Have you Have you been able to hear one of those? No, the longer version? Not, not the long, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's somewhere. I'd be curious because it doesn't really strike me as a jam song. Well, they did the, they did the white album anniversary box set a couple years back and it's yeah. not on there. So I, you know. It's, oh, so it may not exist then. May, yeah. Or maybe they just don't want to release it. Maybe it's like Carnival of Light, you know, is yeah. it ever, ever going to come out? Uh, three chords only used in the song, yeah. uh, E7, G, and A. I mean that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, like to me, it all it's it it's all the riffing, right? It's all that's like na 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 na, and then the na 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 na. It's like it's just that's a great, great rock riff. And, you know, you have to contextualize everything the Beatles did in the sense that pretty much nobody had done it before them. <laughs> so, so it's, it's, I mean, there's so much invention going on that they will never get credit for because it's all just been sucked into the whole, you know, oh, yeah. bastion yeah. Of, mu- of what music is now. But, yeah. you know, you talk about like they're, the, 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 it, like guitar, guitar effects, how they would say, we want this sound. And then the engineers at, Abbey Road would work on something and present it to them the next day and they would have what would be like a crude guitar pedal that never existed prior to that moment. So, yeah, amazing. Next song we go to, uh, and uh, your quote was, <laughs> just, uh, just to remind you, dear listeners, you know, still, Stephen sent me his list and then he had like a little quote, uh, love Love well-researched and well-prepared guests, so you win the award. Uh, but his quote for this next song was, everything, period, outro. Very succinct. The song is, I want you, she's so heavy. Uh, the classic last cut side one on Abbey Road. Yeah, and it's such a traditional like blues riff. Like when, you, when you strip this song down, it's just very, very straightforward blues guitar playing. I want you. bit of knowledge that I found that I thought was pretty cool is Lennon and Harrison kind of took, I think it was the, the casino guitars you're talking about, the Epiphones, and went into a corner of the studio and they multi-tracked the outro over and over and over again. They just didn't think it could be big enough. They just kept recording the same lines over and over again. And I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, McCartney was working on something else in another room 
in the studio while they were doing that and they were just like you know freaking out on guitar on guitar sounds and it is a guitar sound masterpiece from top to bottom and just the way the soulfulness and the bends of like it just lingers and then when you're learning to play guitar and you start to mess around with stuff like that and you feel how that can be it just it's just so empowering and it's such a simple simple song they started working on it at trident studios uh, in soho in london only about three weeks after they'd finished up what was to become Let It Be. Right. Uh, so they sort of dove right back into it and they, you know, didn't know. I, I always wonder, and I've read, you know, was this maybe a late edition that they intended to put on Let It Be or was it going to be on the, the next album? Did they, yeah. was there going to be a next album? <clears throat> so pretty interesting there. Um, begins in 6-8 time with an arpeggio right. guitar in a sort of D minor, and then it sort of progresses through. Uh, this is uh, very technical music stuff, which I'll, I'll skip over as per uh, Ian McDonald. He loves to, loves to go into stuff like that. Um, Lennon said in 1970 in an interview that he did with Rolling Stone, a reviewer wrote of She's So Heavy, he seems to have lost his talent for lyrics. It's so simple and boring. She's So Heavy was about Yoko. When it gets down to it, like she said, when you're drowning, you don't say, I would be incredibly pleased if someone would have the foresight to notice me drowning and come and help me. You just scream. <laughs> and then she's so heavy, I just sang, I want you, I want you so bad. She's so heavy, I want you. Like that. That is uh, Lennon's recollection of it. Um, and what they did to add to the heaviness, as per your point earlier, a white noise generator. Right. right. Uh, which was off of George's fairly newly purchased Moog synthesizer. Right. Uh, so they use the white noise setting on that. Uh, one thing we talked about remixing albums. They, they did a, a sort of remix of Abbey Road, and the thing that they did turn up a little bit uh, was Billy Preston's Hammond organ part, oh, which, yeah. which yeah. is brilliant, which is brilliant yeah. uh, in this song. Yeah. Sort of, sort of underpins it. Uh, George is playing a Fender. Okay. Uh, probably, from what I could see, the the new Rosewood Telecaster that he had. A beauty. Um, John was playing his casino, which he had, he had had the paint sanded off by that time. I guess it was a thing you sand off the paint; and it's going to sound better. I don't know if there's anything to that. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, would you Would you take sandpaper to any of your guitars? No, not, I, I, no I did. Uh, in my Les Paul was covered in stickers in the early 90s and I've had them all removed so it's kind of back to its original form now. Uh, um, the abrupt ending wasn't added until the final mix of the song uh, on August the 20th. That was that was also the day they took the, the photos for the cover if you're interested uh, and uh, yeah they just, just it was like end it there. Yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so, so we just dealt with a couple of heavy tunes, heavy yeah. uh, Helter Skelter. I want you. She's so heavy, uh, especially for the Beatles. Uh, Lennon dealing with a theme that would permeate his music for the rest of his life, and that was his relationship with Yoko. Yeah, uh, a common theme for music that you've been involved with, from my little you know Mickey Mouse research. But uh, it, you you seem to feed off of 
Where You Live. I mean, Shakespeare, mm-hmm. a lot of the tunes on there are that kind of theme. Yeah. Um, you know, Where We Are. And, of course, Jimmy and the Moon, a classic yeah. of, of, you know, you're writing about where... So what is it that makes that such a rich vein for you to tap into or that you, a well that you like to go back to? Why is that? I think... I think it's the story. I think it's important for me, and I think for Ron was the same. It's important that that music tells a story, and for you to be authentic about that, you need to be talking about things you know about. And so, I think my writing changed a lot when I started to look closer to home. When I started to look around at the things that were happening right around me, as opposed to things that were happening. You know, when we in Popular Front we were we were writing kind of world beat music. It was big sort of global themes. And they they, they don't resonate. Like I mean there's that's a dime a dozen to me. So you scale it back and you start to write about the things that are right in front of you, then you find that those the themes that are contained within resonate with people. First heard Alan play the dust Beijing. We were at the troubadour and you just walked in and you wondered about how my skin gets so thin. There's so much hidden in that song. Then a moment passes and it's gone. About this year, we were gonna win. Now it seems so many things are coming to an end. Don't cry for me and don't cry for my friends. And let the last person walk through that door. Whisper goodbye to the troubadour, yeah. So, I mean, it's just simply about the love of the story and connecting the songs to the stories. And, and then the song, you know, I mean, to me, when I when I play, I, I tell a lot of contextual stories about the songs that will often, you know, burst past the borders of what the song is, right? So, so you um, couldn't write uh, Hello Goodbye? Couldn't or wouldn't? Probably wouldn't. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a funny thing. Yeah, I... I th- I think you're correct about that. I I uh, I just don't get joy out of that. I don't get joy of out of not having. To me, the joy is connecting that that story to something musical. And so I don't have a lot of songs that I've finished, anyways, where it's a very simple chord progression. So, I mean, I, I, but Jimmy in the Moon to me stands kind of as a fan stands yeah. alone is that the album you're most proud of is that a fair question i think it's a fair question i, I mean I'm, I'm probably most proud of the new one i mean which, which you haven't heard yet but, yeah but i think i think that one yeah it it it, it was where i wanted to be songwriting it, it was where it, it tells the stories i wanted to tell and it does it nicely and concisely and um, I don't think there's a lot of wasted notes on that album, so yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with it. I, I, but it's like it's, it's hard not to just be focused on what you're doing lately. But yeah, something about Jimmy and the Moon. Um, yeah, I mean, it really it really sort of did capture a nice moment of songwriting, but also a nice moment in the band and the first foray into Wolf Island and working with Chris, which was a whole, you know, 
reimagining of how how to record, which was which was great. So yeah, it, all those things kind of came together and produced something that was that I'm quite proud of. Yeah. Well, here's a song that George Harrison was always uh, quite yeah. proud of. Uh, and absolutely brilliant. And your quote. What an arrangement. You know, every part of the song was written on an acoustic guitar, and then they went experimental on the arrangement. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, so the story goes is that he, he borrows a, an acoustic guitar from Eric Clapton and, and writes this song, Walking Around in His Garden. And you really do, and this, this is this is one of those ones, too, where you when you slap a capo on the seventh fret of your guitar and play it the same way he would have played it, and all of the little riffs that are built inside of it, and then the turnaround into the into the bridge. Like, it's, it's really brilliant. And then they take it, and I, I guess Lennon was not, on this song, no, uh, and, he, he'd been in a car accident yeah. and he was recuperating, and he's not on it yeah, at all. Not yeah. on it at all. So McCartney really steps up and sort of supports what Harrison's doing. Um, the vocals, the backup vocals, are fantastic on the song, but the guitar is everything on this. Like it's just, like, it's just like you know, this this is up there too with the greats of all time. Like it just the do 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 like this that that riff. Leading into the you know what is a G form chord, I'm not sure what the actual chord is in the seventh fret, but uh, you know you can play it in an open tuning and it's it sounds as good. It's just it's it's a very simple D to G to A seventh and then D to G to E seventh. Simple for you. Yeah. Well, I mean they're, they're simple chords. Like this was this was one. Um, you know, I didn't learn to play this till later in life. My daughter, my older daughter, when she was younger, asked me if I knew how to play this song, and I was like. Oh, I should figure that out. If, she, if she's interested, I should figure it out. And yeah, it's a, it's just beautiful. That da 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 da. It's just everything about it is just great. On on the multi track, uh, you had Paul McCartney who was playing his Rickenbacker bass at this time. That's the the bigger bass that you see him using in uh, Magical Mystery Tour. That's his Rickenbacker bass. Uh, Stars drums are on another track. Yep. Harrison is playing a Gibson J two hundred acoustic as the main guitar uh, and then he added an additional guitar part using the same J200 on a different track yeah. so yeah uh, and but I think they must they, they were experimenting with the Moog in this one too because there's a lot of there's a lot of subtle ads that are beyond the guitar on the yeah because well, you 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 words were they went experimental on the arrangement how so well but because I think it's really it's the archetypal acoustic guitar song but it doesn't sound. The recording doesn't sound that way. It doesn't sound like it's. It it isn't uh, Blackbird. It isn't somebody sitting in front of a mic playing acoustic guitar. It's very arranged and very broken up into the parts. There's a lot of changes from one movement in the song to the next. Like when the bridge comes in, the you know when, the, when it goes to that sort of F form on the bridge, it changes completely. I'm and I'm saying F form. I I realize that he played it on the. Seventh frets of they're not F chords they're whatever it is up there. <laughs> You're talking to a guy who doesn't know the names of chords. Well, so. big thing too was and it's a very the Beatles were great at this, but it's a very understated use of the uh, the Moog synthesizer. 
yeah. on here comes. It's just a little bit of a pad in there. And yeah. it was, again, this was a recent purchase of George's. Uh, it was one of the, probably, in fact, it was probably the only one in the UK at the time. Uh, and uh, you hear it on the White Album on a few tracks yeah. used very, very subtly, which is, I've said this before about the Beatles, but... Uh, it, they tended to have real taste with things like that. So, for example, yeah. on, on Rubber Soul, there would have been a lot of bands who would have put sitar on every track. Yeah. It's going to be our sound, this album. Yeah. You know, they use it on one. Um, yeah. and, and, and Backwards guitars. They use it on a few songs, yeah. but they didn't overuse it. Well, I mean, four incredibly tasteful musicians with a producer that's the best of all time, who is always there as a sounding board and, and putting forth ideas. And then it just seems like the, the, the supporting cast would kick in their little bits too. Like, you know, the Jeff Emmerichs and the Mel, Mel's of the world, world would have their little say. And like, you know, one, there's one song in this list that Mal played trumpet on. Like, it's just like, it's, uh, there's just so much happening and so much context. So, And they mixed it at uh, 51 cycles per second rather than the usual 50. So it hmm. slightly reduces the length of the song and it raises the key by a quarter tone. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, and then uh, further to this, remember Martin Scorsese's documentary in 2011, the, the George Harrison yeah. one, Living the Material World? There's that studio scene where you've got Danny Harrison, George Martin, and Giles Martin. They're sitting there listening to the multi tracks, which they still have from Abbey Road. And uh, the tapes found uh, an, an hitherto unheard guitar solo. That, that that documentary was dense. Like, yeah, well, yeah. I'm going to watch it again. It was it's really been, good. Been a while. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it, it was really good. So we come to the last of your great uh, guitar Beatles tracks, uh, and it's been just a spectacular list. Thank you again for, for all your hard work. Uh, and it's a great song to to end on. I also love the way you, the list you sent me was all chronological. <laughs> so you, I, you yeah, might, I did some refining because like I, I had a couple things out of order, but it was important to me that we moved because because it was arriving here. Which so I'll let you. Create. Well, here's here's the quote. Yeah. The quote from uh, from our chief researcher uh, F. Stanley. Uh, <laughs> the ultimate. Band jamming song, such perfect counterpoint in the guitars. Then Billy Preston echoing the line on keys. It's I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside. Oh yeah. So this is the mashup of two songs. It's a song McCartney didn't finish called I've Got a Feeling and a song that Lennon didn't finish called Everybody Had a Bad Day and they put them together, Bad Year, sorry. And they put them together to make this amazing song that, you know, to me, 
Let It Be and what was happening in the, you know, the, which we get to see again in this last year, um, courtesy of- uh, Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson, yeah. uh, is the making of this music, which seemingly to me was a time when they took a step back from the dense arranging and just sat down with the guitars again. And then the rooftop concert just capitulates that with with the four of them playing with Billy, and it's just all guitar interaction, and it's all perfectly. That album is is the ultimate guitar record, and so you know I know I only picked one song from this record because I had to make choices, <laughs> or we'd be or we'd be here all day. Um, but also because I think there's just a there's a vibe that runs through the whole album that is similar from song to song, but it's all about guitar interaction. And this one to me is the best one of them all. It just it just has that that simple riff that starts it off. And like I said, the idea of being with your buddies in a room with your when you're jamming, and this then you know somebody brings this up and you play it. And we used to all the time in the precursor bands at lowest to the low. It was always just something we played just for fun. We never played it live, but we always would just play it for fun as a warm-up or whatever. <laughs> and uh, it, it's just it's just great. It's just great. It, it's it's an, an interesting story, which you alluded to. It's, it's, it's two half-finished songs. Uh, it was the first time that they had really sat down together and written a song since circa Baby, You're a Rich Man, A Day in the yeah. Life. Um, they worked on the song together at... Paul McCartney's house on Cavendish Avenue, as I mentioned earlier, right around the corner from from Abbey Road. Uh, the version in the album that you hear is from the rooftop concert on, on January 31st. And it's interesting because it's a real indication of where the two men's lives were at that time. McCartney, who uh, was in love with Linda, you know, I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside, and is very optimistic. Uh, and then Lennon actually had endured a, a pretty hard year, right? He divorced yeah. his first wife, Cynthia. Uh, his girlfriend, Yoko, had a miscarriage. He was yeah. uh, in battling a heroin addiction. He was arrested for drug possession. He was estranged from his son, Julian, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was really unhappy with the Beatles, and yeah. yet they put it together to make this this beautiful song. It's a ma- yeah, it's a masterpiece. Uh, it's yeah, it's just the the interplay of the guitars and the interplay of those two different songs that become one is just is just perfection. Do you and, have you sang this with anybody, or you just guys jammed just, at we, it? We would jam, jam it and, and sing it. Yeah, like it was just I would fun. just I would think the part where you're both singing it that that must be so much fun to do. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a, that's what I mean. It's the ultimate jamming song. It's just like it's just you know it's not too hard to play, but then it's got that cool. I mean, it's like you're coming out of that and then it goes I've got a feeling. And then it goes back into the riff again. Uh, I I just love the part where they're, you know, I guess it's a counter melody, is it? Mm -hmm. You know, I've got a feeling, a feeling. And then, you know, yeah, oh, that is just. uh, I've got got a feeling, a feeling. Everybody Everybody had a hot time, oh yeah. Everybody had a wet dream, oh yeah. Everybody saw the sunshine. Everybody had a good year. I feel it. Everybody I can't the hide. No, no. Everybody pull the socks up. No, no. Everybody put the foot down. Oh, yeah. 
And when you watch them playing it on the, you know, we've, we've referenced uh, Get Back quite a few times, uh, but it, it, the neatest thing is just seeing, despite all the shit that was going on, just the joy in their faces yeah. for that rooftop yeah. concert when it's it's almost like, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's like, we're a band again. We're just exactly. up here. It's like four a- of us or Billy's here too. We're just yeah. playing and they look yeah. so happy. And that was a, a very negotiated situation where they were, I mean, there were factions in the band that wanted to do a big full on concert, right? And I think it was Lennon and Harrison that were like, let's not do anything or we'll settle for this. And, but you're right. You, but that whole period with them sitting in the circle in the studio, playing through whatever song they're playing through, it's leading to that. It's like them being a band together with two guitars and a bass and, and drums. And then Billy Preston adding a ton of flavor to the songs. Um, and, you know, he probably helped keep it together a little longer just because I think playing with him added so much intrigue and interest yep. to the, all four all four guys. He's got a subtle, yeah. fair, subtle but tasteful part in this song. You hear it in, on the, the original mix. He's over in the left channel on the organ. You can, yeah. elect, or sorry, electric piano. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can hear him. Uh, so guitar's pretty easy for this one because you see it in the film. Yeah. Lennon's on his casino. Yeah. Uh, Harrison is on his beautiful Rosewood Telecaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, you see, and McCartney's got his Hoffner oh, bass. Hoffner, yeah. Yeah, and Ringo's got his, uh, what are they, uh, with uh, pearl, there's some kind of oyster pearl. Yeah, is yeah. the the, uh, the Ludwig drum set? Yeah, yeah, oyster pearl. I, yeah. I, I know that from Barry Keane, Gordon Lightfoot's drummer, who have oh, talked yeah. to. Him. Oh yeah, he's he had he tells a great story about uh, walking past a window in downtown Toronto, the Simpsons Christmas window, or a music store or something, and they had a. Ringo's Oyster Pearl drum set set up in the uh, in the window. His parents bought it for him for Christmas. Oh wow! So yeah, that's cool. So, so that is. Uh, I mean, we've been. Now can, let's throw out a couple others. Sure. I, I, I've got a couple. It's a great list, my friend. And yeah. uh, I mean, you can't quibble with one. I've got three that come in from sort of a very similar era that I, and maybe because it was sort of a guitar, a guitar heavy era, I don't know, but, uh, and your bird can sing. Uh-huh. Love the guitars in that. Fantastic. It's like that sort of that melodic intro that takes you into the, into the first vocal, right? Yeah, it's like it's yeah, beautiful. Well, this I, I, that I, that probably was on my longer list. I was gonna say yeah. so. Did um, Taxman? Yes, I mean that was the one of the ones that I cut towards the end. But that's a tough, that's a tough call. But decisions had to be made. <laughs> what a but solo! Yeah. yeah. That's that sort of the be- to me the beginning of that counterpoint, like you know, sort of uh, solo without a lot of musicality to it. That just kind of speaks to the theme of the song. It speaks to the chaos of the song, and it, yeah, he does that perfectly. That's Played so by great. Paul McCartney. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, here's another one. I don't know if this would have been in your list or not. I just love it because it's such a signature. I'll, I'll give it's such a signature Rickenbacker riff. Mm. George Harrison song, of course. Yeah. 
if I needed someone. Okay, yeah. I yeah, love that yeah, opening. Yeah. Da, 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 yeah, yeah. If I needed someone to love, you're the one. Well, I mean, like, the, there's a couple other George Harrisons that got, you know, like, Well, My Guitar Gently Weeps and, and, and uh, something. Like, if that's. That's one of the greatest sort of yeah. signature lines of opening a song. I, I thought that yeah. would have been on your list. Well, it was on the long list, but I, I mean, like, <laughs> like so, so a couple like that to me were maybe too obvious, and there was other things that were more interesting topics of conversation. But like you know, I mean, Frank Sinatra calls that the greatest love song of all time, and there you go. I mean, we're talking about un- unmistakable guitar parts that open songs. That's one. That is hundred percent. And I'll throw out one more, another girl. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Another girl, another girl, another girl. Yeah, it wouldn't. Have, that wasn't on my. That list. wasn't on yeah. your list. Okay, but. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll give you uh, we've been talking about Beatles guitar music and and having a great time for the last uh, you know hour and a half or whatever it's been. What's your sort of final takeaway from the your list and uh, our conversation? The floor is yours. Well, I mean it's just, I think it's just where we started today and in, in the idea that there for me it's been a lifelong demystification of how the Beatles did what they did and we're as music fans we're lucky that these four people met and created what they created together and in such a short period of time like it's it's truly phenomenal that what everything we're talking about happened in the space of you know seven or eight years at everything like everything they their whole entire body of work um Leaving, leaving, you know, the the idea of abandoning going on tour, which was a dog and pony show for them, just because there was very little musicality involved with it, opened up this ability for, you know, there's very few bands in history. Like, I mean, I, I can't, like, like, XTC is another band that left the touring world and just focused on being in the studio. It produces great results because, like, you know, when when you don't have uh, somebody you know, standing at the door going, okay, guys, like, we've got to be finished by midnight, and you can just do what you want to do and try and experiment and continue to work and work and work. And that's, to me, what the Beatles did best was work. They worked hard to create what they created. They reworked stuff. They reworked it again and just continued until they felt it was right. And what we're left with is something that, is just right from top to bottom. There's no bad choices. There are songs where, like you know, like I said, "I Am the Walrus" is one of my favorite songs of all time. Not particularly something that is heavy on guitars. It really features a lot of other instrumentation. There's guitars in there for sure. There's lots of songs that where the piano takes the the foreground. So we were talking about guitars today. So a lot of those, a lot of great songs got left off. Um, but as a body of work, we are. Uh, all the better for it, and I think it's. I think it was a catalyst for so many of us to try to do something that was in that at least in the ballpark. Stephen, thank you so much for your time and f- for all the work you put into this. Really appreciated. And My, yeah, it was a pleasure. It totally is a pleasure. It's it's a pleasure visiting the Beatles again in a very intense way. 
I, I loved it, yeah. Well, that is uh, what we do here. So thanks again. Yeah. Hey, just a reminder about the Stephen Stanley Band Indiegogo campaign to get their new album out. Head to Indiegogo and do a search for Stephen Stanley Band to help out there. They just need a little bit to get it across the finish line. So you can go there and do a search. The easy way is just to go to the link right to the campaign in the show notes section on this episode webpage at romicast.com. If you are enjoying Stephen's comments and observations, uh, I would urge you to check out a couple of other episodes where Stephen was my guest. In Series 1, Episode 5, Stephen and I dug into Magical Mystery Tour. That was a lot of fun. Uh, And then in Series 2, Episode 5, we talked about the Traveling Wilburys first album, Traveling Wilburys Volume 1. And Stephen's, he's a big uh, George Harrison guy as you could probably pick up from uh, from this show uh, and also a really big fan of Bob Dylan. So that's a fun episode. That is episode five in series two. You can find both those episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at romicast.com. Uh, if you have enjoyed the episode or for that matter, any of the episodes, please do consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Any little bit helps and you can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the support the walrus button most people don't make a donation most people myself included don't donate to every podcast they listen to but i know i have a really loyal listenership i know that from feedback that i get so if you enjoy the podcast please if you can afford it support the podcast and along those lines a big thanks to jim patrick a returning supporter of the podcast and maxime como a first-time donator Thank you to both for your recent donations to support the ongoing production of The Walrus Was Paul. Much appreciated and most certainly not taken for granted. Big thanks to you both. You can follow the podcast on the usual socials on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at the handle Romanuk Paul. On Facebook, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can go old school and send me an email at the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the dot at gmail.com positive reviews and shares on your social channels also a big help so next time on the walrus was paul canadian songwriting giant grammy award-winning producer and singer-songwriter the great dan hill will be my guest as he talks about some of his favorite tracks on the beatles white album I don't think we were aware at the time of just what a what a legacy, what an enormous gift to the world the Beatles were. Again, as as we started out this this talk, you know how they came to be in America anyway after the Kennedy assassination. It was sort of like God had waved this magic wand and said, "Here's part of the healing. Here's part of the light that's going to get us through this turmoil, this chaos, this utter darkness." Because remember, there was all sorts of other stuff going on: Vietnam War, you know, the race riots. We were so we, we could never ever pay back the Beatles for what they gave to us, for what they contributed to the world. That is Dan Hill. 
next time on The Walrus Was Paul. Uh, just a quick moment here to fill you in on uh, what have I been listening to lately. Uh, still really digging Council Skies, the new one from Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. Great album. Uh, and also an album that was given to me a few weeks back by one of our upcoming guests, uh, Newfoundland's own Chris Pico's new record, Split Down the Middle. Uh, Chris was in a band called Long Distance Runners. They've been on hiatus, so he did a solo record, and it's really good. Uh, some clever lyrics and good playing. It's a grower. I've listened to it a few times, uh, but uh, make a note of it. Uh, you can stream it or, or pick up a, a CD or an album copy. Chris Pico is the gentleman's name, and the album is called Split Down the Middle. He will be a guest on an um, upcoming episode of The Walrus Was Paul. I'm trying to remember. Uh, it is Beatles for Sale that he talks about. So listen for that in the coming weeks. Anyway, those are my recommendations this week. Uh, Don't forget, once again, if you enjoy the podcast, a donation, always appreciated. Click on the player or go to the website if you would like to do that. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels, also a big help. That is it for now. I'm Paul Romanuk. Pleasure as always. I will talk to you next time. Get tired of 